Yes, this morning's reading is uh, chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested, and from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is no bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason the man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and the wife, sorry, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Good morning everyone. Great to be here with you this morning. So we're looking at this topic of men, women and the Bible and this is really part one of a two-part sermon. Not two sermons, but part one of a two-part sermon. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Genesis chapters 1 to 3 and then we're going to look at some themes that we see around this topic that go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, some that change and some that stay the same. And then next week in the second half of this sermon, uh, we'll look at some of the New Testament passages that speak to this and we'll really think about application and what this looks like for us. So normally with a sermon, we'd have application and we'd, we'd leave today uh, with some concrete ideas about what we want things to look like, but because this is such a big topic and we really wanted to give this the attention that it deserves, we're sort of stretching this out over two weeks without uh, giving you guys one massive long sermon on a Sunday. So you're welcome. 
You know, how about that? Now, like I said, we're going to look at this topic of men and women. And, and listen, this is one that we've got to do carefully. Because there's lots of stuff in our culture today uh, that speak about this in a variety of different ways. And regardless of whether you come from uh, you know, one side or the other with how we think about these issues, uh, this is something that's going to be worth going back to the Bible and looking again at what it actually says to us and having humble hearts and being ready to receive what Scripture offers to us and think it through. Because it's not actually just straightforward and easy. There's lots of stuff going on here as we look at these ideas. And oftentimes we get ourselves into trouble because we bring our own stuff to the text as opposed to simply letting the text be what the text is. And so I know that for all of us in these days when we have different discussions about gender and about people transitioning from one gender to another and fluidity, and I know that people in this room have face these issues themselves or have family members or friends that are going through this. This is a very personal topic for lots of us, and so we need to do so sensitively and carefully. But at the same time, like I said, the way that we do that is going to the Scriptures and seeing what they say and trying to understand them as best we can to shape our lives in this world. And and I say this as somebody who cares deeply about this stuff. Uh, Some of you might not know, uh, but I'm actually the convener for the Women's Ministry Committee in the Presbyterian Church of Australia. That's a mouthful. Uh, no, no, thank, I'm assuming the applause are just for saying it. Uh, now, this doesn't make me an expert on the topic, and I only share this with you so that you know that this is something that I care about, seeing men and women work well together in our church. Uh, and so, this is personal, we can't get around from that, but it's also scriptural, and so we're going to dig into it and look at it together. So, with that uh, preamble out of the way, let's get to it. Let's go to the beginning. It says in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So point one of what we see here from Genesis chapter one to three is that man and woman are both made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it actually means quite a lot, but in this specific context, what it means is, is that man and woman were both created to rule over God's creation and represent God in this world. At the time when Genesis was written, it was a common practice for rulers over you know, vast amounts of land, when they couldn't be physically present in one of their territories, they would set up an image of themselves to represent them and to reflect that the fact that even though they weren't there, they still ruled over it. And that seems to be the idea that we're getting at here, is that Adam and Eve were living representatives of the fact that God is the one who rules over the world. And so Adam and Eve were called to be co-representatives and co-rulers over the Lord's earth with the command to to have dominion over it uh, and to go forth and multiply in it. That was the mission that was given to them as image bearers of God. And this is something that they needed to do together. And we really see that being emphasized in the way that Adam and Eve are talked about in Genesis chapter 2. So we've got image and likeness in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2 we learn that it's not good for a man to be alone. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now I'll we'll come back to that helper word in just a second. But what I want to be really clear of is here is, does the fact that, that God says it's not good for a man to be alone mean that God made some sort of mistake in creation? To which we'd say, no, God doesn't make mistakes. His decision to create Adam first is designed to communicate something to us. It wasn't an accident. It's deliberate. It's communicative. The first thing that he wants us to understand is, is that it's not good for Adam to be alone because he can't fulfill the mission that God had given to him by himself. He needs a helper in order to do that. But this is the key thing. That word helper, okay, when we think about it in our English context, often when we think about a helper, we think about an assistant. You know, I, I, you know we say to our kids, like, are you going to be daddy's little helper today? And we kind of think of it that, that helper word as saying something like our little buddy. But that's not what this word means. Not, not even close, actually. This, this idea of a, a suitor help, suitable helper for Adam. When we look at the way that this, used gets, this word gets used throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the most common person that it refers to is God himself. So in Hosea 13, You were destroyed, O Israel, because you were against me, the Lord, against your helper. Psalm 115, O house of Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and shield, as Joe prayed for us before. Deuteronomy 18, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. This idea of a helper in scripture is not in itself the idea of a a subordinate or somebody who is a lower ranked sort of idea because God himself, more than anyone, takes this word to describe himself. A helper is a source of strength. It's a rescuing figure again and again. And so when Adam here is said to need his helper, he doesn't need a little buddy or an assistant. He needs his co-ruler, his co-representative with him in order to rule well over creation and to go forth and multiply. Hopefully I don't need to explain that one to you. So that's that that word helper there. Not a subordinate, but rather a co-ruler with him, his strength and support that he needs to get the job done. So Genesis 1-3, man and woman, both made in the image of God. It's not good for man to be alone. But there is a primacy given to Adam's leadership. Now we're going to see this come through a lot more clearly when we look at the New Testament passages next week. But we do get a hint here in Genesis that Adam still has some leadership responsibility here that flows forth towards creation and towards Eve because we see him name her twice. So it says there in verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's a play on the Hebrew word there. They sound similar. But he's naming her woman because she came out of man. And also Adam named his wife Eve in Genesis 3.20 because she would become the mother of all the living. Eve seems to mean living. That's the closest that we can sort of get to it. And so there's something here about Adam 
naming Eve, which was part of his responsibility as a leader in creation, as God had given it to him. And there seems to be something here that certainly is going to get picked up in the New Testament, where there's some sort of primacy for Adam's leadership. Now, naming something doesn't always make you the leader of it. Hagar gives God a name later in Genesis. So just naming something doesn't make you the leader of it, but the fact that Adam was given responsibility to name all the things in creation, and that this sits alongside that and that role that he was given, seems to point towards, again, his leadership having some sort of primacy here. So, man and woman, image of God, not good for man to be alone, can't get the job done by himself, he needs his strong support, his co-ruler, and there is a certain primacy given to Adam's leadership, and in Genesis 3 we see a husband ruling his wife is a negative consequence of the fall. Let me show you what I mean. In Genesis 3, the early verses, we see Adam and Eve sin, and we see curses pronounced against the snake, against uh, Eve, and against Adam. I just want to focus on what's said to Eve here, because this is most closely related to what we're talking about. Not so much the childbearing part here, but rather it says, in regards to our relationship, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, that desire one's really tricky. Nobody's quite sure what it means. Does it mean that she wants to rule over him? Does it mean that she has some sort of disordered relational attraction towards him? We're not exactly sure. Something's not right there. But what's really clear is that it says here that one of the consequences for Eve in creation as a result of sin is that her husband will rule over her. Now, some people, when they see Eve as the helper, that, and, and they think that that means that somehow Eve was subordinate to Adam at the very beginning, they look at this here where it says that Adam will now rule over Eve, and they, they, they say, well, it can't be, the problem can't be that he's ruling her because they want to say well, he was already ruling over her because she was his helper. Now, I've sort of gone a different direction in that, and I hope you can see why. But also here, I don't see this, this word ruler is, is not actually a negative word. It, it's not negative in and of itself. This is not a negative idea, because again, God is described as a ruler again and again and again. It's only from the context that we see it appear in that we see this as some sort of negative idea. And so I think that when we put it all together, what, what, what's happening here, that, that's the word there, mashal, in Hebrew. I think what we've got happening is this. Adam and Eve were called together to be God's co-representatives and rulers in this world. And that was something that they had to do together, both as the image of God. There was a sense in which Adam was given some primacy in that relationship, but it was not a sense where, he, where Eve is sort of put under him as a subordinate in any sort of strong sense. It was more like he was first in this partnership of them together. And then the negative consequence of the fall is this sense of them, him being first amongst equals starts to manifest in a way where now he will rule over his wife. And that that's a negative result of the fall. Now we're going to, again, unpack this a little bit more next week as we look at some different passages, but I think that's what we get from the Genesis passage just on its own. Okay? So, man and woman, both in the image of God, not good for man to be alone, primacy given to Adam's leadership, and a husband ruling over his wife is a negative consequence of the fall. All right. 
What we're going to do now is we're going to start to look at some themes and patterns that go across uh, the rest of the Old Testament and, and move in towards the New Testament. So we can sort of see how this plays out a little bit, but mostly so we can sort of recognize... We've got some categories to put in all the different pictures of men and women serving as, in, as part of God's people together and what this actually looks like. Okay, So first one is this, first point. There seems to be a pattern of men leading formally and women leading informally through the Old Testament and the New Testament. That seems to be the pattern that we see. So let me give you some examples of that. Okay. First up, uh, we've got the kings of Israel. The leaders of God's people, those ordained by God to lead, were kings. And there's a, a strong sense uh, in, in which it's the, the, the kings, the men who were to rule and lead. And we don't really see any deviation from that. The one time that we see a woman become king of, of either Israel, or, sorry, or become the royalty over Israel or Judah, it's a really negative example uh, with Athaliah. And so there's a pattern there to how that works. There's also a pattern with the Levitical priesthood. Now, not any man could be a priest. It was a very specific subset of people within Israel that could be priests. But it was still a role that was specifically given to men in the context of Israel. Now, there were females that served in the temple and, and did all sorts of different stuff. But again, that specific role of priest was given to men from the tribe of Levites, specifically descendants of Aaron. And then we see with the prophets that most of them were men as well, but not exclusively, and that's really important as we're going to see. So there's a sense here in which men occupy these formal leadership positions, women lead in a variety of different other ways, like I said, including prophets, which a bunch of women get called in, called in different contexts. And it does seem as though we see this continue into the New Testament, but not quite in the same way. Because specifically, royalty and priesthood is something that's opened up to both male and female believers in the New Testament. As sons and daughters of the Lord, as co-heirs with Christ, it says in 1 Peter 1, that we are a chosen people, men and women. The, the you there is not gender specific, that, that's all. You men and women are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful Light. We're now all royal and priests as part of the new covenant that we sit under today. But even still, when we look at those that Jesus chose to be the leaders in the early church, he chose 12 men. Now, some people want to say that this was simply a cultural move in the moment. That this was something that where Jesus was just running with the culture at the time, that would have been too much for him to overturn uh, all of the, the patriarchy that existed at the time. And look, that's, on one level that makes sense, but this is why I just can't quite go along with that. Jesus and the leaders of the early church were going against culture in so many different ways. Again and again and again. In fact, when we look at, uh, you know, some people want to say the same thing about why God chose kings and priests to be men in the Old Testament. They want to say that was, that was a cultural thing as well. To what I want to say is, one of Israel's main callings was to be different from the world around them. Their cultural difference was what spoke to them to being a people of the Lord. And so, if Jesus wanted to really shift the pattern that we see through scripture, he could have done that. And I don't think he would have been 
afraid or worried about what the, the cultural contexts or interpretation might have been. Jesus is consistently subverting expectations of what male-female relationships are meant to look like. When you go through and you see Jesus and the way that he relates to women, he was doing so in a way that was consistently going against the culture. He would speak with them openly, one-to-one in public, that was banned by some rabbis. He was meeting with them and promoting them and teaching them in a way that just went completely against the cultural grain. Jesus was not afraid to do something different culturally, and yet when it came to choosing his twelve, and when it came to choosing the early authors of the New Testament and, and the letters that would become part of the Bible, he, he, cho- he chose men still. And I can't just ignore that. That, 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 that's not something that I, that I can get away with. It would, it would be really culturally easy to sort of just, just say, well, there's a trajectory here and that, but I just, I don't think that we're given quite enough in Scripture to make that conclusion ourselves. And so, there's a pattern, Old Testament and New Testament, of the formal leadership amongst God's people, where men have a primacy in those spaces. But, and I'm gonna spend some time on this, because I really, really, really want us to understand that, this, this next point, okay? Just because men were in those formal leadership roles, that does not diminish, and it certainly was not designed to exclude women from all sorts of leadership and rescuing roles throughout Scripture. And so I'm going to give you a lot of these, because I think that this is the thing. Our our culture values formal leadership and title and position so much that we can think that that that's a, a massive elevation of somebody over another when you put them in that sort of situation. But in Scripture, we so often see God subverting that by using women to be the deliverers and be the leaders, despite the fact that they didn't have those formal roles in God's people. So let's have a look. In Exodus, who saves the Lord's anointed Moses? Who saves the boy? Well, we've got Shipra and Puah, two Hebrew midwives, who stand up against the political rule of Pharaoh at the time in order to make it possible for these Hebrew babies to be born. Who rescues him when he is a baby sent off down the river? His sister Miriam, who later gets called a leader of God's people and a prophetess in her own right. Now, I'm going to give you a bunch of these. I know some of you are taking notes. I, if you would like a copy of this afterwards, you can ask me. I just see some of you scribbling madly. I just want to warn you. I'll go quick. In Joshua 2, Rahab saves the spies that have been sent from Israel in order to make it possible for them to defeat Jericho. In Judges 4, we see the prophetess Deborah leading God's people in battle alongside Barak and pronouncing judgment upon God's people and also declaring how they'll be delivered. In the same chapter, we see Jael kill one of the evil sort of uh, Gentile generals that were coming against them in pretty brutal fashion. Cut that picture there for a reason. Okay? In 1 Samuel 25, we see Abigail save David from committing a great crime because of the sins of her husband. In Psalm 68, Jeremiah 31, just as a couple of examples, we're told about how women lead the people in song and in dancing in worship of the Lord in giving praise to him for all that he has done, and it's women that are leading the way in doing that. In 2 Kings 11, great story, okay? Jehosheba, the older aunt of the boy king Joash, saves his life 
from her murderous stepmother Athaliah, thereby ensuring that the Davidic line is preserved and that he will one day be king. Esther, used by God as a woman to save the entire nation of Israel. And that's just the Old Testament. Again and again, we see women, not in these formal leadership positions, not, as, not labeled as king or priest, but literally saving the nation. Somehow I left Hulda out of there. I don't know how she dropped out of my PowerPoint. Hulda again speaks judgment, God's people. We see women speaking, leading. We see them prophesying. We see them rescuing. The fact that they weren't put into these leadership positions in the formal sense does not mean that they weren't leading, rescuing, and every bit as valuable in the history of God's people as any of the men in those other positions. In fact, when we look at all the men in those positions, they don't exactly do great all the time, do they? So we can't take from that that that's some sort of endorsement of men over women because those guys grew up, we, we have a much longer track record of the men growing up than the women. Okay, There's nothing in this where women are put in this subordinate position because they they lack something in and of themselves. As we're going to see next week, God seems to be doing something symbolically in the way that he's put this together. New Testament, we see women with Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry right to the end. They're there the entire way through. In fact, we we have a better record of some of the women's journey with Jesus than some of the men. They're there at the foot of the cross. When everybody else has abandoned Jesus, when his disciples have fled from him, when they are too afraid to be associated with him, it is women who are there by his side. We see the Samaritan woman talking theology with Jesus. Despite her low reputation, despite the fact that she's a woman, she goes and proclaims Christ to her entire village. In Luke 13, we see a woman held up as the greatest example of generosity for all of us to follow. In Matthew 27, the only person who declares Jesus to be righteous through his trial is Pilate's wife, a woman. In Matthew 26, Mary prepares Jesus' body for burial publicly in the face of everyone again. How foolish would she have looked leading people in worship as she offered up this incredibly expensive perfume in order to worship Jesus before all others. In Luke 23, as Jesus is being led to the cross, it is the women who are publicly lamenting and mourning what's happening, where again the disciples are nowhere to be found. In Matthew 28, it is women who first see the resurrected Lord. And it is women who first proclaim that Jesus has come back from the dead, that he is risen. Women are there in the upper room. When the Holy Spirit descends upon people there and the tongues of fire are upon their head, women are there every bit as much as the men and then they go out together to proclaim the gospel to the people in the streets. A fulfillment of the scripture that Peter quotes in the very first sermon after Pentecost where he, where he quotes from Joel where it says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Maybe not again a formal role, but given the power of God to speak. Lydia is one of the 
leaders in the early church, an incredibly generous and successful businesswoman that makes it possible for so much of Paul's ministry to actually be taking place. And it's a group of women that that formed the first church in Europe in Philippi as Paul reaches out to them. In Philippians 4, we're told about Paul's co-workers, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, even though they're not you know, getting along at the time, they're still called co-workers by Paul, and part of the reason he's exhorting for them to make up is because they're so valuable and they've worked so hard with him in the Lord together. In Romans 16, we're given a list of people. There's 28 people there that are listed and greeted by Paul, nine of whom are women, most prominent amongst them, Phoebe, who is the woman who delivered the letter of the Romans to them and probably read it to them there at that first hearing and maybe even explained some of it to them because she was Paul's messenger. Again, and as you go through that, you see other women being honoured. Priscilla and Aquila, uh, most famously, Priscilla, with her husband, instructs Apollo so that he'll understand the scriptures more accurately. First kind of small group setting that we see there, and they're leading that together and instructing Apollo. Priscilla often listed uh, before her husband when, when their names are given, an odd thing for the time. In Acts 21, I, I couldn't find a better picture of Philip's daughters. They really need better publicists. Um, Philip's daughters, in Acts 21, are prophetesses. Speaking to God's people. Again and again and again as we go through the Old and the New Testament, while there might be this pattern of men being in these formal leadership roles, women are speaking God's words, they're leading, they're rescuing, they're saving, they're being used powerfully by God. And the reason that I put this emphasis on it, like some of you might be at this point like, man, why are we talking so much about women? It's because we've done a bad job with this as a church. Because as I talk about patterns and that sort of stuff, we, we can make that the point and the goal to sort of somehow hold that pattern. That becomes the line that we're, that we're trying to set. And as a result, we've hurt women in the church. We've, we've, what, our message has been to them, no. When what God would say is yes. Even as he gives us an apparent shape to that. And we, we need to guard against that. Part of the reason that we have in the church a public relations uh, problem with the world when it comes to these issues about men and women is because we've done a bad job. We've said no to women when we should have been saying yes. And we've let a legalistic approach hurt people in ways that we need to repent of. I've got two more uh, observations to make here as we look at some of the themes that go from old to new. So that was that's one thing that I think stays the same between the Old Testament and the New Testament, pattern of males in these formal leadership positions, but women leading in different uh, ways through God's history. Second one, this is a change okay, that takes place. I think it's really interesting that in the Old Testament, okay, there was this prominence given to men in the family and religious life of people In that, the sign of becoming or being a part of God's people, the physical sign that the Israelites bore to testify the fact that they belonged to God was a male sign. It was circumcision. Female circumcision was not a thing. It's a completely different idea that was not present amongst God's people. And so we see here that it was the men in Israel that bore that sign of being part of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. 
But when we get to the New Testament, circumcision is no longer that sign. It becomes the gender-neutral sign of baptism. There's a sense in which in, in God's kingdom, now, there's been a shift in, again, to the shape of it and the, the physicality of what the, how the covenant was expressed that means now baptism is given to both men and women as the visible signs of being part of God's people. And I think this is tied to that in the Old Testament, as we're going to see in just a second, there was a much stronger emphasis on the importance of childbearing, which really gets tied to the idea of waiting for the Messiah, and that that was the main way that women were going to serve within God's people. And that shifts, and in this New Testament context, where that's no longer the situation, the visible sign given is now for both men and women. And the third point sits alongside this is this. The value of women amongst God's people shifts in the Old Testament from where there's a focus on beauty and fertility to the ministry that they give in the New Testament. What do I mean by that? Uh, I'm sure if I asked most of you that have been around church for a little while, if I said to you, can you give me some examples of women in the Old Testament where their barrenness was a problem, you could probably come up with a, 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 a list pretty quickly. right? And that's because, as scholar Marco Mausko here says, the primary role of women in Israelite society was to have children. It was a great disgrace for a woman to be childless. It was also important that men marry and procreate, but they were not usually blamed for childlessness, and procreation was not considered to be their primary role. Makes sense. Women's the ones that, that bear babies, and, and their understanding back then was that somehow if there was barrenness, there was something wrong with the, the woman. Now, modern science would suggest that's not typically the case, but that was how they perceived the situation at the time. And so we've got lots of stories in scripture where a woman is grieved and feels as though the Lord is not necessarily with them or certainly has not blessed them because of their lack of fertility. Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, the list goes on. And alongside of that, as as lack of fertility is, is the worst position that a woman could be in, the best thing that a woman can be outside of being godly, which is certainly a a good thing that's emphasized, is that they can be beautiful. And so again, we see lots of examples in the Old Testament of women being described as beautiful, and oftentimes that goes along with, you know, they have not lain with a man, there was some sort of uh, sense of a sexual purity or something like that as well. And so we can look at the, the, the daughters of humans described there in Genesis 2 as, as beautiful. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Abigail, Bathsheba, Tamar, Esther, Job's daughters. Many of the prominent women in the Old Testament are described in terms of their physical appearance and their beauty specifically because, again, if they're beautiful, they're more likely to attract a husband or they're more likely to be a catch uh, for the husband. And if they're fertile, then that's a sign of God's blessing upon them because one of their main roles and responsibilities was having kids. But what's fascinating is, when we get to the New Testament, and we get to all those people who I was just reading out, almost all of them, we don't know what they look like, and we don't know their marital status, or their fertility. We see Mary and Elizabeth, who most properly belong to that Old Covenant sort of approach. You know, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, 
his wife, in, in some sense, is the last of the barren Old Testament women. But after that, Mary, Martha, Phoebe, Lydia, Euodia, Syntyche, we, we don't know what they look like. We don't know if they were married. We, we don't know if they had kids. There's a shift in focus from what was valued amongst God's people as they were writing about women from how pretty they were and could they have babies to their work in the Lord, how they served God, how they labored in the gospel. And so we've got to be careful as we read the Old Testament because this is a, this is a mistake I think that the, the church has often made. When we think about what it looks like to be a godly woman or a biblical woman, I'd be surprised if for some of us that the picture that we get isn't something like a housewife with four kids who doesn't need to work and who, if at all possible, can homeschool. Bit of a caricature, but there's some truth to it. But that's not the, the, the picture that we get here in Scripture, we see women doing all sorts of different things and we see the focus radically shift from how pretty they were and how fertile are they to how are they serving the Lord. And that becomes the marker. of This, this is what we honor and admire amongst women. And so, as we look at this whole picture, I think, as again, Margaret says, there are values in ancient Israelite society and values in the new covenant community of God's people, the church, were not the same. There is a shift. And we've got to be mindful of that as we seek to be discerning readers of the scriptures. Now again, there's nothing wrong with beauty. There's nothing wrong with getting married. There's nothing wrong with having babies. Those are all still great things, but they're not sort of the emphasis of this is what it looks like to be a biblical woman. Okay? Alright, so, to summarize what we've covered this week, okay, I know it's been a lot, you guys have been great. Uh, and, and we need, I think, to have this foundation laid before we get to the New Testament stuff next week if we're going to understand it well. From Genesis 1-3 to 3, we get, Man and woman are both made in the image of God, co-representatives and co-rulers of the Lord. It's not good for man to be alone because he cannot do that job of ruling creation and multiplying without his strong, rescuing helper beside him. There is a primacy given to Adam's leadership, which we catch a hint of here with him naming Eve. And the way that that sits in context. Okay, but a husband ruling his wife is a negative consequence of the fall. And then through the rest of scripture we see there's a pattern of men leading formally and women leading informally through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's a continual sort of idea. But we see a radical change in what the, the family, religious and social dynamic looked like. Because we see a shift from the male sign of circumcision to the gender-neutral sign of baptism in the New Testament. And a shift in the focus from women being pretty and fertile to women being co-workers, laborers in the gospel, servants in the church, and everything they do for the Lord. Even proclaimers of the gospel, I'd argue strongly. So, that's part one. Hope you're looking forward to part two next week. Uh, just because it feels weird to not give you at least something to think about and how we, we do for it, let me just say this. At the end of the day, while there is a shape, I think, to how the Bible talks about men and women, what's most important is that all of us follow Christ. That we seek to be as much like Jesus as we can be, regardless of whether we are male or female. That we are all filled with the Spirit as believers in Jesus. 
that we are all men and women together as part of God's people in his church, that we are still men and women as image of God, and that as we talk about this stuff, we can have great confidence that whatever God has for us as we follow Christ, he's called us to do it together, and he's called us to do it with him at the center of our hearts. And I'm going to pray that we do that now.